in the very next psalm after Psalm 102, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, and so on. Uh, it, one of the reasons that we're gathered together this morning is to bless the name of the Lord. Another reason that we're gathered together is to encourage each other and to build each other up uh, in the, the way that we are walking in the Christian life. And I can testify this morning that has already happened here and it has been a blessing and I trust it can continue. I want to greet you all in Jesus' name. And uh, I'm planning to preach again from the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph. And you may turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. While you're turning there, I uh, just wanted to quickly review a little bit what I preached about the last time. I also preached about the story of Joseph. I'm plan planning to preach a, uh, a series of messages, I guess you could call it, from the life of Joseph. But the last time I preached, I talked about the unhealthy dynamics in Jacob's family. And I had four... P points, I guess you would call them, that contributed to those unhealthy dynamics, and that was polygamy, uh, passivity, partiality, and patterns of sin. Those were things that were happening in Jacob's family that were making problems, and there was dysfunctional things going on in his home, and there's still dysfunctional things going on in this home, uh, in the story, in the message that we want to look at today. I had also mentioned or brought out the fact that one of the outstanding things about the story of Joseph to me is how Joseph was able to, through all of the things that he went through, he was able to keep a perspective that was beyond himself. Joseph after his brothers and his family had all moved to Egypt, was able to say that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph was able to come to the place where he realized that he was just a little piece in the picture, in a, a much, much bigger project that God was trying to accomplish. God wanted to take the nation, the people of Israel into Egypt and build a great nation out of them there, take them out of there, preserve their lives there by Joseph being there and, and uh, being second in command and so on. But then also beyond that, uh, increasing them, building them, taking them out of Egypt with all of the types and the things that happened there. And of course, even broader and bigger than that, God was going to bring from this nation a Savior, a Messiah, Jesus Christ Himself. He was the, the, going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, the promise that God had made to Abraham that out of you I will make a great nation and out of you all the nations of the earth, all people of the earth are going to be blessed. Now Joseph didn't see all of that, but Joseph understood he was able to come to a place where he understood that he was just 
a small piece in a much, much bigger project that God was working on and Joseph was content to be that. I think we should be suspicious of a gospel that is centered around me and myself and my well-being. Okay? The gospel should be centered around the kingdom that God is building here on this earth and on His church. Yes, God is intimately involved in each one of our lives and He cares about us, but the message of the gospel and what God is doing is bigger than myself. Okay, Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read, I know I read this the last time, but I'm going to read some verses from chapter 37 again. I I believe I'll read from the Holman translation and you can follow along in your King James, but just to give us a little different perspective here. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peacefully to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told his fathers and brothers, but his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said? Are your mother and brothers and I going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and went to Shechem. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, What are you looking for? I am looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him 
from their hands and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. They, well, I think I'll stop reading at verse 23 or 24. I think I'll stop with that. What I would like to think about this morning in this sermon is the mistakes that Joseph made. I used to picture Joseph here in chapter 37 as an innocent, carefree, obedient, almost flawless young man at this stage in his life. Now, I suppose there's various influences and shapes, influences, I should say, influences that shape and develop and paint the pictures and and, uh, give us a perspective of things that we have. And I suppose one of the reasons I have thought this way about Joseph is a Bible story book that I grew up with. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with these Bible story books, the Bible Friends series. In this book is a story of Joseph that I grew up with as a child. Uh, Captivating stories. Very, very good pictures. I like these books. We read these books to our children and I recommend them. Um, If you remember the story of Joseph, it it talks about him and his brother taking care of the sheep and has some of the pictures. Um, his Then his father, uh, Jacob, Joseph, comes to the, the fall time and his coat, his old coat is too small and his father decides to make him a new one and he brings him, bring, they bring out the pots of uh, color and they make this beautiful coat with different colors and so on. And and this story is etched in my mind because I grew up with it. But it, I do believe that uh, the story gives a slightly skewed perspective of the story of Joseph than what we see in chapter 37. There's no book written by man that gets everything perfectly right. And again, the, the perspective that I would get from that story is that young Joseph was always sweet and obedient and he was completely a victim to his, of his ungodly brothers. Now, I will say, to be fair, Joseph, in comparison to his brothers, Joseph was a gem. Uh, they were murderers. They were fornicators. They were dishonest. They were hypocrites. And we looked at some of the things that they did in the last sermon that I preached. Joseph was a man of integrity and honesty. Yet he was not a perfect son of Joseph. He was made of flesh and blood just just as all of us are. Now, I realize in saying some of these things that I will be saying, I'm reading some things into the story that are not exactly spelled out as I am saying them. And I want you to know that if, if I'm off balance or if I'm saying things that you don't think are right, I invite you to correct me and to tell me. But this is the way that I see the story unfolding here in Genesis 37. 
So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, thinking about mistakes that Joseph made. In verses 1 and 2, it tells us that Jacob dwelt in the land and and, uh, so on. And Joseph was 17 years old. He was out taking care of the sheep somewhere away from the main camp, helping his brothers. These brothers were the the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah, it tells us. There was four of them. That would have been Gad and Asher, who would have been the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's handmaid. And then also Nan, Dan and Naphtali, who were the sons of Bilhah, who was Leah's hand, or Rachel's handmaid, sorry. So those were the, the four sons who Joseph was helping herd the sheep at this time. And it tells us that Joseph came back to Jacob with a bad report about his brothers. He gave his father Jacob an evil report. Now, the scripture here doesn't tell us specifically what was going on, but apparently these brothers, while they were out away from their father and taking care of the sheep somewhere, apparently they were doing things that Joseph didn't approve of. And apparently it was also things that that he knew Ju- Jacob wouldn't approve of. So jo- Jacob came, Joseph came back to Jacob and he told Jacob what was going on. He gave him a full report. He gave them this evil report about his brothers. And I'm sure this did not sit well with the brothers. Joseph was their younger brother. They knew that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Jacob they knew that Joseph was, was practically locked in to Joseph's good favor and grace and, and that Joseph really couldn't do anything wrong. I think that's how they looked at him. And they already disliked him. They disliked him intensely because of that. So here Joseph comes back and tells Jacob what was going on. He gives them this evil report. On top of all of that, Sometimes it is right to report a person's wrongdoing and to expose sin. I'm not meaning to say that it is wrong, but it has a lot to do with what is motivating a person to do it. If Joseph was telling Jacob about his brother's trespasses because he genuinely loved and cared about them, because he was interested in their spiritual well-being, then he was doing it for the right reason. He was doing the right thing by telling Jacob what he did. But if he was doing it because he thought he was morally superior to them and because he wanted to secure his position just a bit more as the favorite son, he wanted to you know, pad his position a little bit, then he was reporting for the wrong reason. And my opinion is that Joseph was doing it to pad his resume. He was the good boy. His brothers were the bad boys, and he enjoyed it that way. Anything bad that he could bring about his brothers to his father, to Jacob, was helpful for Joseph to maintain his status as the favored son. I suspect he was acting selfishly rather than out of love for his brothers. That was one mistake that Joseph made. In verses 5 through 11, something else happens. 
here in chapter 37, Joseph has a dream. He and his brothers are harvesting grain. I suppose it was wheat or barley or whatever grain it may have been. doesn't say, but they are binding sheaves, these sheaves of wheat. And all of a sudden, Joseph's sheaf stands up straight and tall by itself. And each one of his brother's sheaves gathers around and bows to his sheaf. Now, Joseph tells his brothers this dream and they react about as you would expect that they would react. If you think about it, Joseph, again, here Joseph is, Joseph, they already know that Joseph is a tattletale. He's telling Jacob things about them that they don't want him to know. Um, they know that Joseph is the favored son. Jacob is giving him more love and attention than he is the others. J Jacob has made Joseph this special extraordinary, uh, beautiful coat. And now, on top of all that, Joseph is telling them about these dreams. This is big talk coming from a little brother that they already intensely dislike. So Joseph has another dream. I suppose it seems like the dreams happen very close together, perhaps the next night. This time he dreams that the sun and the moon and the eleven and eleven stars are bowing down to him. And again, he takes the time to tell his brothers to make sure they know all about this dream. And again, it just increases the hatred and the jealousy in their heart. And this time, even old passive Jacob rebukes him for telling the dream. He says, do you think your mother and myself and your brothers are going to bow down to you? Now, we know that Joseph's dreams were from God. What we don't know is whether or not Joseph realized that they were from God at this point in his life. It would be 13 years before these dreams that Joseph's dream would come to pass when his brothers finally came to Egypt to buy corn and bowed down before him as second in command in Egypt. We know that Joseph didn't forget these dreams because he remembered them when his brothers came and bowed down to him. So he, he remembered the dreams. He kept them in his heart. And I suppose, I'm sure, there were times in those 13 years that Joseph spent as either a slave or as a prisoner where he would wonder and he would think about these dreams and he would wonder about why God, why, why he dreamed these things. What did it mean? What was it all about? It was right and good for Joseph to realize the dreams were significant, but it was very unwise for him to share the dreams with his brothers because of the relationship that they had. It just intensified the animosity and made their relationship worth, worse. Joseph could have used much, much better discretion than what he did in this situation. He should have kept the dreams to himself. He should have, or, or maybe perhaps shared them only with his father. Some things are just best left unsaid. And this was one of those things. 
So maybe to sum up, maybe this this uh, a summarization of Joseph's mistakes and attitude here in chapter 37 would be that Joseph flaunted his father's favoritism. He enjoyed it. He knew that his father loved him more than his other brothers, and he enjoyed that status. Uh, he rubbed it in to his brothers. I really believe he did. Joseph was dealing with that old common-to-man problem of pride. And I believe an accurate summary could be that Joseph had a haughty spirit. He wouldn't have had to tell his brothers the dreams. He knew that they weren't even on good speaking terms. His brothers, it says, couldn't even speak peaceably to him. That's how upset they were with him. And he knew that. He knew it would make them angry. He wouldn't have had to tattle on them. He wouldn't have had to flaunt the coat in front of them and make them envious. But he did all of these things and his relationship with his brothers continued to deteriorate to the point that they wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him out of sight and out of mind. And they were willing, it seems like they were willing to do whatever it took to accomplish that. What a sad situation. What a broken home. What a, a broken relationship. And certainly the brothers here were, were mostly to blame. They were the ones who were full of envy, full of hate. They had left bitterness. They had left those things into their hearts. They were responsible for that. But Jacob also played a hand in this by his very unwise display of special love to Joseph. It was destructive to his home. That favoritism that he showed to Joseph was not beneficial to anybody. It was not beneficial to Jacob. It caused him grief. It was not beneficial to Joseph. It created that spirit of pride. It helped to foster that. It was not beneficial to the brothers. It just did not help anybody. And then again, Joseph did not help the situation by his spirit of pride. It seems like he put fuel on the fire rather than trying to put it out. The situation had come to the boiling point here at the end of chapters 37. Something had to give. Now here's my assessment, in my opinion, of Joseph here in chapter 37. Joseph had a heart that was turned toward God. His faith rested in the God of his father Jacob and his grandfather Isaac and his great-grandfather Abraham. Joseph's faith rested in that God. He was not living a life of rebellion and deliberate sin against God. I believe he was not living as his brothers were. He was living above that. And he sincerely wanted to do what was right. But Joseph was also born a sinner, just as all of us were. He had to deal with the flesh, just as all of us have to deal with the flesh and the selfish nature that we are born with. He was young. He was immature. And he did some immature and unwise things here in Genesis 37, particularly in the way he related to his brothers. He was dealing with that age-old problem of pride and probably guilty of a haughty spirit. God saw that pride and immaturity in Joseph. 
God had a plan for Joseph's life. God wanted Joseph in Egypt so that Joseph would be in control of the food supply of Egypt so that the brothers and Jacob's entire family could go to Egypt and their life would be preserved as a people during those years of famine. God wanted the children of Israel in Egypt God could very well have worked it out that Joseph would somehow very quickly get from chapter 37 here to being the second in command in Egypt without those 13 long, hard, miserable years of Joseph's life. He could have made that happen. He could have taken him directly from being the favorite son to to being second in command in Egypt. But God had something else in mind. God was preparing Joseph. He was preparing to take Joseph on a 13 year detour in which Joseph was either going to be a slave or a prisoner, one or the other, in all of those 13 years. Joseph doesn't know it, but he has 13 hard, tough years ahead of him. I believe that God saw the immaturity in Joseph, God knows that a person with a proud and a haughty spirit is not going to make a good leader. God wanted to tweak him and mold him and shape him. Shape him into the person that he could use for the situation and the position that he wanted Joseph to be in. He wanted to iron the wrinkles out of his life. He was going to put the pressure on. He was going to put him under some heat. He wanted to prepare him for what he had. So there's a lot of things going on here. There's Jacob's favoritism. There's the hatred and envy and the pride. The, the hatred and envy in the hearts of his brothers. There's Joseph's haughty spirit. But behind it all is a sovereign God who is, believe it or not, he is using these bad things and this bad situation to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in more ways than one. So the rest of the sermon, I'd like to just make some application to Joseph's mistakes that he made. And what can we learn from that today? 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that these things happen unto them, speaking of the people, the the children of Israel, the people of the Old Testament, These things happen unto them for in samples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. I want to think about the admonition or the warning and the instruction that we can glean from the mistakes Joseph made. First of all, let's think about Joseph bringing an evil report about his brothers to his father. And I said in today's lingo, we would call that a tattletale. And now you might think that a tattletale is a children's term and it's maybe it's beneath the level of those of us who are mature adults. We don't, we don't need to worry about those things. Well, maybe it is. The mature adults can learn lessons too. To tattle, according to Webster's dictionary, means to chatter or to prate, to tell secrets, to, to blab, to utter or disclose in gossip or chatter. That sounds pretty 
much like adult language to me. So I guess we can learn from that. A tattletale is an informer. It's somebody who enjoys telling other people about a particular brother's wrongs or faults, especially to make himself look good. Now, the question that you are probably asking and the question that I had to ask is what about the purity of the church? Isn't it our responsibility to expose sin and to inform the church about a brother's sin that I only may be aware of? The answer is yes. There is a right time and a right way to inform the church of a certain brother's sin that he may be hiding or that he may have that only you know about. Even though we are brothers and sisters and we love each other, we do not cover up for each other's sins that need to be confessed and need to be brought out into the open. And we should not be accused of obstructing the justice of the law, even of the local government. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 how to address a brother at fault. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. <coughs> now there's two things in that verse, just that very that one verse in Matthew 18, that I see as being very important in this matter of telling the church of a brother's fault of exposing sin. And number one is, you talk to the brother first. I cannot think of any reason or any situation in which it would not be beneficial to first talk to the brother before you talk to anybody else about it. I, I'm open for correction on that, but I, I could not think of any reason why that should not always be done first. I conclude that we don't do this uh, many times because it takes work and it takes effort and it's much easier to just tell somebody else about it and let them take care of it or to talk about it behind the brother's back and to gossip and that's a whole lot easier than to actually personally engage in the brother myself. But Jesus says, talk to him first. Number two, Jesus says, if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That has to do with the motivation of why you are concerned about your brother. The motivation behind exposing sin must be to gain him. It must be to win him back. It's always to restore relationships. It's never, it cannot ever be for any kind of hidden selfish motives like making myself look good or bringing some kind of revenge to my brother. It cannot be that way. Matthew 18 will only work if we are operating from the premise of love we genuinely care for the brother. We are pooling for him. We are on the same team. We are concerned about his well-being. We care about him. We love him. James 4.11 Speak not evil one of another, brethren. 
He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And I suppose Joseph may have had the right intentions, the right motives in telling his father Jacob in bringing that evil report about his brothers. He may have had. I suspect he was doing it for selfish motives. Okay, what about Joseph telling his dreams? What can we learn from that? Joseph telling his dreams, telling his brothers what he did about his dreams, it, it just wasn't very smart. It wasn't very wise. It was the wrong words at the wrong time. You've never done anything like that, have you? Unfortunately, I have, and I've done it too many times. Too many times I have said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Our words are not something to be taken lightly and just to be spouted out without thinking. Words can hurt people. They can leave deep wounds. Words can also minister and bless and encourage. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Using words right is a Christian virtue and it is a virtue that is learned. It's not something that just comes naturally and just flows out of our lives. At least it doesn't for me. Proverbs 25.11 It's another verse that talks about words. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. I don't know exactly what Solomon had in mind when he said that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. But I believe Solomon is speaking about some kind of pretty arrangement. An arrangement that didn't just happen. It didn't just fall into place. Somebody intentionally and deliberately took the time to create and plan and make whatever it was that Solomon is talking about here, apples of gold and pictures of silver. Somebody put thought into it to make it attractive and make it look just right. A word fitly spoken, something that is well said at an appropriate time is like a pretty arrangement. It's attractive. It's compelling. It's tasteful. It's influential. But words like that don't just happen. They must be arranged. They must be deliberate and measured and thought out and planned ahead. This is probably the, the dullest, most boring time of the year. But, you know... My wife Ruthie can go out at this time of the year and she can start picking branches and little dead stalks and berries and all kinds of weird little things. And she can put them together into a vase and when it's all done, it's, it's something beautiful. It's amazing. That is the picture that I got kind of when I thought about Solomon's words here that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Now, 
There's there's two things that reasons why she is able to do that, and and the one of the reasons is is because it's just in her. She's got a creative gift that I don't have. Uh, if I would try to do something like that, it, I don't know what it would look like. It wouldn't be very pretty. But the second reason she's able to do that is because she puts forth the effort to do that. If I go outside this time of the year, the last thing on my mind is picking st sticks and dry grass and berries and try to make something look pretty for the house. It's, it's just not... I just don't have that energy to do that kind of thing. And I thought about that with the words that we speak. If we're going to speak words of life and words that are going to be influential and words that are going to be like apples of gold and pictures of silver, okay, it's going to need to flow out of us through the Holy Spirit in our lives. But there needs to be more than that too we're also going to need to put forth the effort to do it and to make it happen and to think about the things we say and not just to say things unwisely without discretion. I believe Joseph could have done that a little bit better. And then thinking about Joseph's spirit of pride. Again, pride is that age-old problem of man. It's the original sin. Lucifer was that beautiful angel, the most beautiful angel, um, and he wanted to be like God. He became proud. He was proud of his beauty. He wanted to be like God. In Isaiah chapter 57, God says, Isaiah says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble heart, humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God cannot use the proud person. He dwells with the contrite and the humble person. In fact, he works against the proud person. James 4.6, James tells us, He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. God literally works against the proud. He will stand against them. God dwells with those who have a humble and a contrite heart. Proverbs 6 tells us that a proud look is one of the things that God hates. Proverbs also tells us that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we can see that here in Genesis chapter 37. This, at least in a degree, is what happened to Joseph. God wanted Joseph in a position of authority, but he didn't want the pride. God was going to work in Joseph to remove the pride out of his heart so that he can use him in the position that he wants him in. Can you imagine if Joseph would have been sold by his brothers and somehow would have went straight to Egypt and straight to being second in command to Pharaoh. And soon after that, his brothers would have came to buy grain for him. Do you think Joseph would have been the same type of leader that he was 13 years later? Do you think he would have been able to forgive his brothers the way that he forgave them? I tend to think he would not have. 
But God wanted to work. God wanted to iron those wrinkles out of him. I believe that humility is one of the most important qualities of any person in any leadership position. And several years ago, the school took a field trip to uh, Harrisburg and we toured the state capitol building. That building is one of the most impressive buildings I have ever seen. The rooms are, some of the rooms are, are spectacular. And one of the, in the, the, the room, the Senate room where the Senate gathers and meets, the state Congress meets, there's, the ceiling in that room is probably 60 feet high. I'm not sure, 50, 60 feet high. There's, there's, uh, chandeliers in there that weigh several tons and have thousands of light bulbs on them. Amazing room. One of the things that I remember that the tour guide taught us is that down, so we were up on the balcony looking down. We were probably 40 or 50 feet up looking way down at the Senate floor and way down on the level where the senators would walk in. There was two small doors. They looked extraordinarily small for the size and the beauty of the room. Our tour guide said that the architect specifically designed those doors to be that way because he felt like any public servant should be should have to stoop or make himself small in order to serve his country. I thought that was remarkable especially in light of much of what we see happening today in the political world. The humility is a trait that every leader, a quality that they should have. Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ was equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. The mind of Christ is the spirit of humility. And that's what Paul says we must put on. Let, let that mind be in, in you. In conclusion, God saw tremendous potential in Joseph and he had plans to use him in a great way. But first of all, he wanted to purge him. He wanted to mold him. He wanted to shape him into being more what he could, what he wanted him to be, into being the person that would be useful in the position where God wanted him. God also sees us. He sees potential in every one of us. But, you know, it really doesn't matter what stage we are at in our Christian lives. It doesn't matter if you're young like Joseph was. It doesn't matter if you're 40 years old like I am or if you're 70 years old. There are things in your life, I can guarantee you, that God wants to shape and to tweak. He wants to put you under the iron. He wants to make the steam roll and put the heat on. And wrinkle out the, or iron out those wrinkles in your life. That's what God wants to do. One of the most inspiring things to me about the story of Joseph is that 
right here in Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, we're, we're looking at some of the mistakes that Joseph made. But his life from here on out, his character, his faith in God is only going to go up. This is the low point of Joseph's life as I see it. Um, as far as building character and faith in God, it's only going to increase from here. And the amazing thing about that is that his circumstances of his life are about to go south. They're going to go sideways. There's going to be things happening to him that he can't figure out. And yet, at the same time, he's going to grow in character and in integrity. I think I'll close with that. Let's kneel for prayer.